0: hi everyone thank you again for being for this new session uh, this one in particular which i'm very very excited about uh, i don't think that i need to give an introduction because i think that people who will be watching already know who's uh, the one in front of me uh, the broadway in front of me is an author a comedian an e-class celebrity and soon to be a b-class celebrity just kidding a TV presenter known for his deep analysis of Hollywood's geopolitics, culture, and theology, and also known by some as a KGB agent. Also kidding. His graduate work focused on psychological warfare and film, and he is the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood, one and two. He is the co-creator and co-host of the television show, Hollywood Decoded. Also on his channel, he has countless film reviews where he extrapolates the subliminal messages that are hidden in the movies. He has been featured on number numerous popular shows and podcasts and in debates with some of the world's top debaters, defending, explicating, intellectualizing, intellectualizing and disambiguating the Christian Orthodox Church, putting the best of what atheism and Islam has to offer to shame in a formidable fashion, my subjective opinion. While most of us are spending time on Netflix, he is in his books, sharpening his mind, edifying Christians throughout the world, all for the veneration and glorification of our trying God on the public stage. Jay Dyer, great to have you here.
1: Thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here. I'm glad to talk apologetics and uh, philosophy and, and all those things you mentioned. So I never get tired of talking about it.
0: Yeah, I would be lying through my teeth if I would say that I've seen all your sessions, there are a lot of materials. Those are long sessions, but nevertheless, very fruitful. And like, I knew your material for about like three years. And ever since uh, (laughs) I was watching your content, I was like, wait a minute, this guy is on a different level. Meaning I was watching like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Matt Dillahunty. And all of a sudden I said that he did an, an analysis which is which is known for Jason analysis and all of a sudden i was like wait a minute these these guys were like the best of the best but what he the way he's explaining with fallacies and quote-unquote arguments and objections just made more sense to me and then yeah i went into the rabbit hole of jason analysis and the thing which i really admire about you is that you really are familiar with your work you really do the research i really do think that one of the challenges in this day and age is keeping our attention and focusing it on something, then speak after it. And uh, we have a lot of emotions here, but all of a sudden it seems like you have been training it in such a way that, yeah, you're walking library. If it comes to an array of subjects, I know for a fact that I can touch on different subjects, but we want to touch on this particular one, which is like uh, muscular Christianity, I really do think that uh, a lot of Christians are very defensive and they're like, nah, I don't know. But uh, I do believe just as uh, the session before between you and and Hamilton, he said that the best defense is offense. And when atheists come to your show or to debate you, all of a sudden like, they don't know what's happening to them. And that says a lot, I think. And I think that you do it masterfully and it's something very important that all Christians who at least who feel inclined and then it feels it's put in their heart to do so and yeah that's a passion of yours Correct? well thank
1: you yeah those are kind words I really appreciate that um yep definitely uh ha- I've had enough debates with atheists that, <laughs> that I don't really hear anything new so um, it's kind of become a thing that is just it, it's, it's literally probably a thousand debates with atheists in the last 20 years. So I've heard every, I think, possible objection out there. Uh, and what I always say is that atheism is a very limiting system. So it kind of boxes you into a very finite, limited number of options that you can take when it comes to a worldview. So, you know, you're only going to have uh, a few options when it comes to knowledge. Or epistemology, a, a few options in terms of metaphysics and a few options in ethics. So the, the arguments are almost always kind of prepackaged and usually they're just rehashed things from the last few centuries. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember the last time I've heard an atheist give like a sophisticated argument because they're all pretty much just the
0: same. Yeah, that really, that one, the last thing you said really alludes to my first question, which is. Can you explain what the epistemological mistakes are when atheists try to explain objective truth using empiricist data?
1: Sure. So um, it's kind of a mixed bag on the question of objective truth. Uh, I would say that usually the atheists are probably half and half. There's probably half half of a percentage, 50% believe that there is objective truth, right? Where, uh, you know, the idea of the truth's not dependent upon my perspective, my subjective preferences, my uh, tastes, that it's actually something that's a publicly uh, accessible and known um, fact, truth, proposition, state of affairs. So about half of them don't, that's very easy to refute that, because that's just sort of a really basic, relativism which is self-refuting um and then maybe another 50 percent will think that there is a factual truth um and again i would say out of the totality of atheists again i know i was splitting it up in the 50 50 but out of the totality of atheists probably 95 to 99 percent uh believe in empiricism that knowledge is really only uh, attainable through sense data so there's no other way to know. There's no other means, no other source. And typically man is seen as a, a tabula rasa. This is, again, just kind of re- repeating the Enlightenment worldview and anthropology. So that being the case, again, the position is very limited. It's very boxed in. And uh, this is where somebody like David Hume comes into play because he's kind of the classic atheist who, is consistent with his atheism. So he takes skepticism to the logical conclusion. And we know the atheists are always wanting to be logical. They're always wanting to uh, cheer on and claim that they, you know, basically own logic, they own reason and everyone else is superstitious. But what we actually find out is that atheism rests on some very uh, unprovable presuppositions and assumptions, at least not empirically demonstrable or provable. And you just mentioned one of those key ones, which is the idea that if you adopt Empiricism, and I'm not talking about just believing and learning things through empirical sense data, but the school of philosophy, uh, the view of epistemology, the view of of anthropology that comes out of the Enlightenment, that we only know what we know just from bare sense data. It's very easy to refute that. It's a very... fundamentally contradictory and self-refuting position. And one easy way to show that is the proposition itself that we only know what we know through sense data is not itself a proposition that's uh, within our sense data or known by sense data. Because for one, it's um, it, it, it claims to have universal status, right? Uh, all human beings, only, I mean, you could phrase it different ways but it has that universal quantifier that we only know what we know through sense data. Um, so you can't actually know that because that's it, right? So there's multiple problems with that starting point. Um, but most atheist <clears throat> materialists, uh, you know, uh, most modern people thinkers start with that presupposition. So yes, like you said, uh, it's it's self-refuting on the face of it because you can't actually know that or prove that or demonstrate that on atheist empiricist grounds. So we're not talking about do we learn things for sense data? We're talking about the philosophy of empiricism, which is a specific position coming out of the Enlightenment with people like Locke, Barclay, and Hume.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a, what you mentioned before, where that uh, atheists claim logic and reason, like uh, that's our domain. Can't, uh, can't touch that particular part, but that, that's actually surface level. Like when I hear people say like, yeah, but now by science, we know and we know what's happening now with God of the gaps type of stuff. And I'm like, "Um, th- those are actually appeals from silence. Th- th- those are really like claims. I'm really thinking about like, first off, when you're claiming that God is wrong because if he does X, Y, and Z, first off, it's your subjective opinion, but you claim to use science and reason for instance but how do you actually explain that and the only thing that they mainly mainly do is uh god dooms people to hell and it's hot in hell and uh which god does that and these type of stuff and i'm like you know, you're not addressing the point and uh people like sam harris or matt Dillahunty, the only thing they say is i'm not convinced yeah we don't care if you're convinced or not but
1: right that's a biographical detail it doesn't really enter into the status of an argument So what you're hitting on there is poor argumentation. And this is something we see all the time in atheism. And to be fair, there's quite a few theists, uh, Christians who are also uh, poor critical thinkers as well. So they often give bad arguments. So there's bad arguments on both sides. And uh, one of the bad arguments that you alluded to at the beginning would be, uh, it's kind of a common, it's Father Deacon, Dr. Ananias, and I always joke about this, that people call it, they're always the saying, well, now we know, we now know this. Nowadays, we know this. Uh, yeah, that's really a meaningless phrase, right? That's a combination of two fallacies. It's an appeal to uh, the masses and appeal to authority. Uh, We who? We now know who's the we. Uh, Is this uh, 51% of the intellectuals, 51% of biologists? Is it 75%? I mean, it's just so arbitrary and absurd. It should be obvious to anyone that knows informal fallacies that to say we now know XYZ doesn't count as any kind of argument. It's a very, it's a, it's an informal fallacy. It's a combination of those two that I mentioned. Uh, And so obviously it's a, it's a terrible argument. Uh, but we hear it all the time i don't know why people think this is a convincing thing it's really more of a rhetoric because it's more of a uh uh, almost a kind of an emotional appeal to like well you don't want to be part of the you know superstitious dumb crowd right don't you want to be part of the in crowd of the sophisticated people with high iqs so that's uh, it's it's a version of that which is yet another fallacy emotional appeal so, uh, you know, just, base, just knowing basic informal fallacies is very hel- helpful in these types of discussions because 90%, I'm getting, guessing, 90%, 95% of atheists, uh, online atheists, people that you're going to encounter, uh, they don't know any of the fallacies. Uh, that's been my experience 95, 90, 95% of the time. Um, and yet they're claiming to have, you know, cornered the market on reason. Uh, I mean, there's no way to have cornered the market on reason and reasoning skills if you don't know the fallacies, right? That'd be like yeah. saying, um, I don't know what the law code is, but I'm a lawyer, right? I mean, it just it would be absurd. It makes no sense. So uh, I always try to bring the apologetic discussion back to the analogy of the courtroom. And what's on trial in the courtroom is worldviews. Do the worldviews that we have, Christian, atheist, Buddhist, whatever, Muslim, Do they stand up in the courtroom? The, 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 the court of appeal, the, the, the status is logic itself reasoning, right? The principles of philosophy that everyone agrees to by default, when they come to the table to do a debate and yeah, I mean, granted, there are atheists, there are philosophers who will disagree. Oh, oh there are no logical laws. There are. And that's very easy to refute, right? So if, if there's no logic, then you can't actually argue against logic. This is an old argument that uh, Aristotle in book three or four, the metaphysics uses against the sophist, which is to say that you're already assuming and using the thing that you're denying, right? So if you argue against logic, you're using logic to argue. So that's a type of transcendental argument, presuppositional argument, I think. <clears throat> And so that's the one of the ways that you know if somebody wants to be kind of a smart ass and they come to the table and say, well, I don't actually believe in logic. I, I had a debate well with a kind of well-known atheist a, a while back, JF, and that was kind of the, the route that JF took. JF said, I do not believe in logic, right? And it's like, well, then you're not going to be able to debate, <laughs> right? I mean, if you don't think that there's objective principles of rules, uh, logic, critical thinking that undergird uh, argumentation. Uh, then it's not possible to give reasons for beliefs. And that's what we're getting into when it comes to debates, which is what you alluded to towards the end of your, your last question or, or comment was what it means to justify Right. All that means really is to give a, a coherent, grounded account for why we believe what we believe. What are the what are the reasons to believe what we believe? And so that's why apologetics and epistemology are kind of closely connected because we want to have good reasons to believe what we believe. Otherwise, why not believe something crazy? Why not be in a cult, right? I mean, cults have reasons for why the cult members believe what the cult, but they're bad reasons, right? It's usually something that equates to a fallacy. Why do you think the cult is true? Well, because I met the leader and he gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling when we talked. Well, that's not a good reason to believe, you know, in the crazy cult worldview, right? Uh, so that's why we need good reasons to, um, to believe, to give an account for our, our faith, you know, to, um, as you said, give an answer for the hope that is in, within us. And one last thing I'll say is that another way that we need to be able to give good reasons, not just any reasons, but good reasons is that you can have a, a true belief for bad reasons. For example, you know, Father Deacon loves the analogy of, well, uh, what if I said, you know, something uncontroversial, like I like to wash my hands. But the reason that I do it, which we all agree we should wash our hands after using the bathroom or whatever. The reason I wash my hands is because uh, uh, Little Wayne came to me in a dream and said, wash your hands. Is that a good reason to have the belief that we should all wash our hands? No, it's not because I could have a dream tomorrow that tells me to not wash my hands. I could have a dream. You know, it's a bad reason for something that's a true belief or something that we should do. Right. So that's why we need to have in the, in, in classic uh, and medieval philosophy, they talk about justified true belief. So we want to have good explanatory, just justificatory power behind the reasons for our beliefs. And they yes. need to be coherent. They need to match mesh well with the other beliefs and reasons. Mm.
0: Ever since I uh, heard the concept of fallacies, which was always odd present there with me, but I did buy this book. I don't know if you know it. Perhaps you do. But I bought this book from. Dr. Bo Bennett, 300 fallacies. Like these are like uh, ad hominem fallacies, lucid fallacies. Like 300 of them, with the uh, yeah. examples and how to refute them and how to uh, explain. Yeah, them. I'm
1: sure that that would be a great book. In fact, I might actually get that book okay. <laughs> because I've been looking for a good uh, book that lists you know quite a few of them. A lot of times, you get um, like atheist websites that kind of actually don't do a good job of giving examples because they'll. The atheist, uh, you know, fallacy lists and sites, they'll actually put anything to do with theism as a fallacy, which is, is not true. But um, that's one of the difficult things about philosophy is that uh, it's really impossible to have a purely objective, neutral place in philosophy. Um, th- there's no way to not have presuppositions, to not have biases. And as a presuppositionalist, that's OK. We, we accept that and we integrate that into our worldview as part of our system so um but when when we go to you know these attempts at kind of listing the fallacies from the atheist websites or reddit or places like that you'll get these um bad examples that are not actually always fallacious you know because they're just trying to put theism in there anywhere they can
0: yeah we're going to touch on the presuppositional parts uh, later on my next question is, uh, what can be understood by the transcendental arguments and the transcendental argument for God?
1: All right, so uh, transcendental arguments are a uh, unique type of uh, argument, a logical argument that deals with the preconditions of knowledge. So they have to do with uh, reasoning about what things have to be the case to do reasoning at all. So they're not direct arguments, uh, typically speaking, about this or that thing or that object. They're uh, higher level arguments, uh, meta level arguments, you could say, about the possibilities of how to do reasoning at all, how to have logic at all, how to have numbers, how to have, you know, anything that we claim to be the case. Anything that we uh, predicate about the world, the tree is green, right? Well, what has to be the case for me to be able to say the tree is green? So that's what we're talking about. And It's good to uh, distinguish that uh, a transcendental argument from other words uh, that use transcendental in the history of philosophy or literature that confuse people. A lot of people think, "Oh, you're talking about uh, Thoreau and transcendentalism." Oh, you're talking about, um, you know, you're a Kantian
0: word concept. Well,
1: yeah. So uh, these, uh, the word has a, a a lot of different meanings in different contexts. So. Um, it's really uh, you see for example I mentioned earlier the type of argument in Aristotle in uh, it's either book three or four of metaphysics where he is arguing against the sophists and he says you can't argue that there that logic is uh, useless or so there is no logic because you'd be using logic to do it and he says that would be self-reputing uh, it's sometimes called retorsion right so um, that's a type of a transcendental argument that Aristotle does. Sometimes the transcendental categories are referred to out of the categories of Aristotle, like uh, the being, being goodness, right? These kinds of things um, plate w- where something is situated. Those are also uh, sometimes called the transcendentals. And then Kant basically takes Aristotle's metaphysical categories and turns them into a priori um, structures of the mind. Right. And so, he just basically internalizes Aristotle's objective metaphysical world and puts it into the mind, which is, is, is basically wrong. I mean, I'm not a Kantian. However, Kant does have some good arguments and points where he makes uh, consistent and, and very good transcendental arguments. Now, all of those things are uh, similar to, but not the same thing as the transcendental argument for God and the way that i make this argument is to basically say, I'll just do it in a three-step move. I say basically just that um, all knowledge, all predication, all um, meaningful claims or statements that humans make presuppose categories or these transcendental preconditions, the preconditions of knowledge. And so they would be things like uh, that words have meaning, that uh, that objects have identity over time, that uh, there's an external world, uh, that there's a self making these predications and these these statements and meanings, that the words match up to things in the world, that there are therefore universals, that these words, I'm speaking of the universal nominalism debate of the Middle Ages, that these words relate to when I pick out one from the many, right? This is the historic problem of the one in the many in philosophy. So all of these things uh, abstract categories, logic, logic plays into how sentences work, linguistic philosophy. So I'm saying that all those things are the case, even though they're not under the direct purview of my sentence, right? So my sentence, the tree is green, has nothing to do directly with those categories. But those categories have to be the case for me to make a sentence. Now, it's not it's not only the case that the categories just are, or that they're just sort of independent things. They relate to one another. So the self relates to the act of predicating, right? To know something requires a knower, right? Uh, So there's a necessary connection between these two things. Um, The external world is part of that, right? Predicating presupposes that the object that you're speaking of has identity over time, that it's one object out of a class of objects, right? So all of these really grandiose uh, metaphysical uh, claims, beliefs, presuppositions undergird just even something as simple as a sentence like the tree is green. So when we understand that all of those things don't just operate uh, in isolation or a vacuum, they actually go together, right? You can't have the know, an act of knowing without a knower, you can't have the external world uh, without a knower of the external world uh, who predicates about that world, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of those things hinge together in kind of a, a symphony of categories um, and, uh, the world has to be structured a certain way for these things to be the case. For example, we couldn't have these things be the case and uh, the world or time move in reverse, right? It wouldn't work. This, this would fall apart. Or we couldn't have a situation where all of these things are the case and then tomorrow there are no more universes. They just go away, right? So th- there has to be a, uh, a, a subsistence of these things over time. So therefore, we need a certain kind of world, a certain kind of paradigm that can give an account for all of these very difficult, very uh, metaphysically troubling and epistemically troubling things in the history of philosophy. And guess what? The Orthodox Christian paradigm does that very thing. It gives an account for these transcendental categories that themselves undergird any act of predication or knowledge or belief or whatever so basically i'm making a three-step move i'm saying that an act of predication presupposes these these categories and then uh, one more step these categories presuppose a specific worldview and god so in other words we can't have a world you know like where the uh, where the the there's a god but the external world is a illusion right? That would, again, destroy the possibility of knowledge. We can't have a God that's a a pantheist. Oh, he's just everything, right? We need a world with a distinct beginning, middle, end. So we need a created world and only the Christian uh, worldview has creation ex nihilo, which allows for beginning, middle, and end, and thus telos, things having a purpose causation telos. That's another couple of categories that I should have mentioned are necessary to predicate. Um, which cannot be proven empirically right hume showed that you can't empirically demonstrate causation you can't empirically i'm saying the principle of causation itself you can de- you can uh, demonstrate that one event is followed by another event but the metaphysical principle of causation is something that's not directly empirically uh yeah. perceived that's yeah. hume's full argument just like telos telos is an interpretation of the uh, phenomena but uh, on strictly empirical basis, you're not seeing telos, right? You're seeing this event, this event, or you're reading into the uh, things that they have purpose. They do have purpose, but I'm saying that on purely empiricist basis, you can't look at an object and see that it has purpose. Uh, It it doesn't, the raw data doesn't tell you that and the whole history of epistemology in the last 200 years is all about showing that there's no brute facts, right? Um, Everything is theory-laden. Anyway, so, so, yeah, so that's how we get to the triune God. And then uh, somebody says, well, why, what about a Unitarian deity? Well, there's other arguments that are sort of ancillary to that, uh, that demonstrate that we can't have a purely Unitarian God, uh, for example, it leads to a dyad. If you're St. Basil's hexameron 2, he critiques Aristotle's position where the uh, uh, eternal first actualizer must always have something other than himself to actualize, and that would be a dyad. So if there's an eternal creation, now the created order has taken on one of the divine attributes, eternality. Uh, so there's any, it's not really created. It's it's just as, it's it's as eternal as God is uh, eternally actualizing. So he must always, if he was always the eternal actualizer, then he must always have had the opposite of himself to actualize, and that's what the Aristotelian position says. That's not the Christian view, right? The Christian view is not that there's two uh, eternal principles, God and world, right? That's not right. Yeah. creation yeah. ex nihilo, and that's why we can't adopt. Uh, Aristotle's definitional uh, approach to the eternal actualizer.
0: Yeah, because human beings with their limited noetic sense data, they cannot understand the metaphysical side. So there is this thing called general revelation and there's also this thing called special revelation. These are, yeah, completely different things, not necessarily this this one will also be something we'll touch on later on. But if it comes to the eternality that you just mentioned, really does make sense. Because when uh, people say like the father is the uh, uncaused first cause, and how can it be that the son is eternally begotten? And it doesn't that necessarily mean that uh, the son doesn't have a say? for instance. We already touched this one uh, with Dr. Bo Branson, uh, with the monarchy of the father, which also is a huge subject on, in and of itself.
1: Oh, gonna get well i i agree with i'm from familiar, familiar with the whole issue in that whole debate and i i agree with uh, dr Branson's positions and so as you know i'm a, i'm an orthodox christian so i'm going to defend the orthodox position so uh no uh the idea that the son has a satity of himself uh is a calvinist doctrine it is not the doctrine of Nicaea or any of the church fathers um the orthodox position from Nicaea all the way up to the Sonata kind of orthodoxy makes it very clear that uh, everything that the son has uh, is given to him, communicated to him by the father. That's the meaning of being eternally begotten. So when Jesus says uh, all that the father has, he's given to the son, the works the father has. I also do likewise works. Uh, the things that are given to him would be all of the divine powers that he has and power signifies nature. And so thus the divine uh, essence is communicated from the person of the father to the person of the son so there is no uh notion of the son being all that would be to confuse the father's hypostatic property and giving it to the son
0: your debate with sheikh azhar Rashid, uh which was a very fascinating one because uh his starting point was that some aborigine or someone in the amazon uh, jungle for instance he wouldn't come up with the trinity but okay, wait a minute. Then you are using the creation to explain the creator. So aren't then you're committing shirk or likening creation with God. Isn't that something that is counter towards your position? And there it's, yeah, the, then we do actually see that the Trinitarian doctrine fringe just has biblical gets, but that's just a different subject. My next question. How has Christianity built up the West over thousands of years, and how has and is atheism unknowingly destroying it?
1: Well, I would like to touch on one thing you mentioned in passing, which was the notion of general revelation and special revelation. So typically those are terms that are used in Protestant theology. Um, but I think the better uh, terminology for orthodoxy would be natural revelation and special revelation. I, you could say special revelation or yeah, just revelation. Sure. So um, supernatural revelation and natural revelation. And that's the, the, I use that terminology to distinguish it from Thomistic natural theology. Um, so in uh, Father Sten Eloy's Orthodox Dogmatics Volume 1, he has a really good discussion of this issue where he points out that. We really can't do uh, natural theology in the Thomistic scheme because it's that's bound up with uh, a certain anthropology, certain doctrine of created grace that is unique to Thomism, and by extension, I think Roman R- Catholicism as well, uh, given what their dogmas say. But I just wanted to be clear that uh, uh, it's not the Orthodox view is not the Calvinist view.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. Like one of the one of the persons that made me an Orthodox as well. Like I was born out of the Orthodox Armenian church and now I'm somewhat going back again. So thank you for correcting me.
1: Well, I just want to be precise. I don't know. You know, I know you, you said that you're, you're moving towards orthodoxy, but I didn't know if that meant you are orthodox or in process or where uh, exactly
0: when, when let, let's just say if a random person asks me about a certain orthodox doctrine or something to, to explain, uh, I do believe it in my heart, but I would still like, wait a minute. I don't have the entire knowledge I have. I do have some books about patristics and this type of stuff, but I don't want to give my uh, my opinion if I if I haven't believed sure, it fully sure. yet. I, say, yeah, yeah, I wasn't trying sense. to call you out.
1: I, yeah, I just <laughs> didn't know exactly what your position was.
0: I'm uh, Orthodox as uh, as pretty much get. I've never had something with Protestantism or something, but yeah, the, the Orthodoxy all the way through. But still, a lot to learn. Um, but going back to the question, uh, we do know that the Judeo-Christian tradition has made the West what it is, and uh, there are lots of attacks. There's like, oh, the patriarchy, oh, the Christianity. Like, uh, we we need to we need to like uh, break break this whole thing down and rebuild it back up again mm-hmm. under the realm of atheism. So my question is. Uh, how do you actually foresee the fact that atheism, unknowingly, is actually destroying the West, like the, the, the family structure is being attacked, uh, 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 marriages, et cetera, et cetera, abortions, and under the umbrella of humanists. We are humanists, but then you're doing all these atrocities, not knowingly. So how do you actually Well, this see is, is a known?
1: good example of how there is no neutrality, right? I mean, one thi- thing that... Um, Uh, Thomism, or natural theology or evidentialist apologetics or bad argumentation in the domain of, you know, debates that we engage in Uh, one thing that it's predicated on is the notion of there being uh, neutral ground that you know uh, causation telos existence uh, you know, earthworms, they mean the exact same thing to the atheists as they do to us. So when we find the common ground, we just stack a bunch of, a bunch of things that we have in common. And then maybe at the end of it, we can get them to, uh, agree to there being a first cause. That's not what, uh, the biblical approach, what the apostles preached, what, um, what the the revelation says about the natural man, the the revelation says the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit says that it's foolishness to him says that, uh, for example, you can't interpret the world without revelation because for example, the world as it is now is fallen. So the fall is a doctrine of revealed theology that's in Genesis. Okay. So in terms of natural theology, you can't take things from revealed theology and apply those to, um, uh, natural theology or first principles, right? That's something you do later down the road, and that's based on faith, not on reason, scientia, and demonstration. So my point with all that is just to say that the theology trek that the West took is partly to uh, blame for what happened in the West. This is why St. Gregor Paloma says to Barleum, if you take the presuppositions that you have, if you go down the road, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, uh, what he says to Barlam in the debate with Barlam. He says, if you go down this route, you will end up in atheism. And that's precisely what the West did. The West went that route. It adopted uh, created grace. It adopted uh, natural theology. It adopted uh, the rejection of the news, rejection of the uh, cosmic scope of Christ incarnation and redemption. It rejected um, you know, all of these uncreated grace, the energies. It, re- it rejected all these things that make Orthodox Christianity, what they are, that gives God an eminence in creation. And so what it's not surprising that it would logically move from Occam's nominalism to Aquinas' uh, via media, which is basically a type of nominalism, which would then move to uh, the Enlightenment era of skepticism and empiricism, because Aquinas' theology is an empirical theology. This leads to empiricism. This leads to atheism. So uh it basically cuts God off from the here and the now. The world becomes, as we know from the Enlightenment, a machine in motion. It's just the universe is just a giant machine. Uh, that's why they were pr- principally at that time deists. So they basically God steps out of the picture, he starts the machine, steps back out of it, and then the machine runs down on entropy to you know, its own destruction or whatever. But then eventually within a century or two, they just said, Well, there's no point in having the The first cause at all. We don't even need that. We don't know it. We can't justify it. So just get out, throw out God to begin with. So there's a logical progression ideologically of the West in terms of its presuppositions. And it takes centuries for it to work itself out, but it's just coming to the materialist atheist conclusions of the 19th, 20th century are the end result of the medieval nominalist assumptions of presuppositions a thousand years earlier. It's just taking that long to get to the final point of, oh, okay, well, no, we're just atheists. It's just nothing meaningless. Anyway, so point being is that you can't be uh, neutral. There is no neutrality in the sense that you can't adopt, for example, an atheist position and it not affect your morals. You can't be, uh, oh, I'm going to adopt materialism, atheism, but I'm going to have a strong belief in the family unit and uh, ethics and sexual morals. Or no, it's not going to happen. It's going to inevitably affect the entire paradigm. And it might, it might not even be your generation. Maybe your generation doesn't go to the end results of the atheism of a, a, you know, a generation or a century prior. But this is what Father Starfer Rose is talking about in his book, Nihilism, where he talks about the process of the revolutionary philosophy. So in the first stages of revolution, they, it's very glowing and progressive and positive. And, oh, we're going to evolve to this utopia. It's going to be great. And then they realize within a generation or two, they come to the conclusion, oh, actually the revolution didn't produce what we wanted. It actually led to bloodshed, millions dead. So then you get a depression phase and then the revolution goes into its next stage. uh, And then this progresses. I think he just kind of roughly gives four stages. And then the final stage of revolution is nihilism, nothing. Because it doesn't achieve anything and it's purely satanic and it becomes chaos for chaos sake. That's the fullest... uh, expression of black nihilism yeah and i don't mean that in a racial sense i'm just talking about Mm. just totally demonic energized destruction for destruction's sake because the whole project ultimately was spurred on by the satanic destructive spirit it was always about destruction but men fell prey to the uh allure the the promise right just like in the garden oh you'll be like a god You'll determine yeah. right and wrong. New you'll, age. Make your, yeah. you'll make yeah. your own reality. And then yeah. it, it, what does it lead to? Death, chaos, destruction. Th-
0: that's something I do come across so many times. I was, a, as, as shameful as it actually is, I was a former New Ager. I really did believe, I was a nominal Christian. I really did believe, like, oh, we, are, we are all gods and that type of nonsense. And, like, oh, God didn't want ha- that uh, man would have knowledge, but Satan did. Satan is our friend. Like, do you, like, the stupidity of that thought that it really had me in its grips, for instance, I do understand that a lot of people do fall for it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I just leaped over them, that I'm so super intelligent, but I do understand why people fall into that particular trap. And when I do, for instance, listen to uh, atheists that came from Christianity, for instance, uh, one time I did respond back to good luck with nihilism. And that's some, for some type of reason that, that really bothered them because they knew that I struck a nerve with them. So my next question actually goes, uh, goes beyond what you just said is, why do you think that the most Christians turning atheists come under the umbrella of Protestantism? I hear a lot of ex-Christians describe themselves from Protestant-like backgrounds. I'm not trying to bash Protestants, of course, Orthodoxy or Catholicism have their own uh, atheists, but why do you mainly think that under that umbrella there's this type of fruit coming out?
1: Uh, I would say just do probably on, on the face of it to the deficiencies in Protestantism. So, I mean, there's going to be deficiencies in Rome as well as Protestantism, uh, but the deficiencies in Protestantism are, are such that they probably give rise to atheism um quicker than uh maybe rome although maybe francis is gonna make that no longer the case i mean he's i think he's churning out quite a few atheists uh maybe to compete with the protestants but uh i think the nature of protestantism is such that it is kind of grounded in a rejection of the intellectual now that's not to say that every protestant has been anti-intellectual but uh If you go back to Luther, if you go back to Calvin, the classical reformers, their initial stance, even though it was very academic, was anti-scholastic. Now, I'm not into Western scholasticism, but the move against scholastics in the reformers, I think, sets the stage for um, the removal of philosophy and academia having a relevance to theology. So then, what happens is within a generation or two, you've got the people who uh, split. They go into two directions in Protestantism. They either go into the what's called Protestant scholasticism, where they try to give a really super intellectual, almost almost like scholasticism view of what Protestant faith is, or you get Pietism, and Pietism is the the flight in the opposite direction, being more consistent with the, you know, two sides of that dialectic in Protestantism already. Are we going to be super intellectual philosophers or are we going to be pietistic uh, fideists who don't do any philosophy and we just follow the Bible or something like this, or we just pray or something like that, right? So you get Protestantism going in two different directions pretty early on, pretty quickly. And we see, for example, in Germany, uh, German pietism and going in this direction and the movements that just totally reject anything to do with philosophy apologetics, you know, that kind of stuff, metaphysics, or we get these really high minded people who then soon are so rational that they deconstruct the whole Bible. So we get higher criticism, right? Anyway, so I'm I'm rambling, but I'm, uh, all of that is just to say that, uh, that would just be my surface guess as to why Protestantism does that because from their outset within a couple generations, it was already. So once you critique the church, which is what gives you the scriptures historically, it's only one step away from then critiquing the scriptures. That's a great point. And then yeah. that underdoes the whole thing. So there's a, already a, a shortcut to atheism from the outset of the beginnings of Protestantism. Wow. that's what i'm trying to say
0: yeah i do agree with that particular part but then i do i am of the of the opinion that protestantism is a lot like uh, going through the motions and orthodox is like the full thing like uh, the, the whole experience like or you can watch like a movie or you can go through the theater like the experience is very different going through the the same old motions i do uh, love the product, i do believe that a lot of fruits came out of it like for instance rc Sproul, i love the man i really to this day i still watch his lectures his way of teaching stuff but there are some stuff that he says that i'm not I'm like like the bible is an uh, infallible collection of no wait the bible is a fallible collection of infallible books i remember that you want once upon a time uh, address a particular point I was like wait a minute that sounds dumb so.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there are, are these kind of, um, I mean, Protestantism locked itself into that position that it, its whole foundation was basically anti-Rome, right? So to be anti-Rome is to be sola scriptura, to be sola gracia, sola fide, right? Sola Christos, all of these solas of the Reformation, so you're kind of locked into that. And because it's, so if you depart from any of those solas in their mindset, you're already just on the way back to Rome. So they didn't really have a notion of Orthodox Christianity. I mean, there was a little bit of dialogue between some reformers and Orthodox, but I mean, Luther made it such a kind of a mm, all or nothing thing that, you know, it was like anybody who uh, preaches law doesn't preach Christ. The Orthodox Church preaches law and works, so they don't preach Christ. I mean, Luther would really set it up in these either or dialectics. Calvinism is another step further, which is, uh, you know, even further removing the imminence of God's energies and God's presence, for example, in the Eucharist, right? I mean, Calvin went further and said, no, it's not even the real presence of the flesh and blood. It's just a spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So we have and, and, and with Calvin, you get the divorcing of the presence of the Holy Spirit in baptism as well. So Luther believed in a kind of real presence and a baptism regeneration. So he still understood that, you know, for him, he at least wanted to have uh, a union between the sacrament and the grace of the sacrament. But Calvin has already begun the next phase to split those two. So now uh, the water baptism is not directly connected to the gen- regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is not any kind of like actual body and blood. It's just the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in some special way. So again, we have like gradations and moves away, and then of course after you know, you've got Zwingli and you've got Anabaptists, right, and they go even further. Uh, so moving away from you know what was the well you could say as I guess the remnants of the Latin Catholic tradition, but of course what they're rejecting is the Frankish Latin papal Church of the Middle Ages. So you know that was something that the Orthodox Church had already rejected centuries earlier. So uh, so it was an overreaction to something bad.
0: So I, I would say like one of the main reasons why I became an Orthodox and not Protestant was. Um, several reasons but the main thing was that uh, when you cl- proclaim that you love christ then you keep his commandments and one of his commandments was to follow the apostles and when it comes to luther and swingley and calvin for instance all of a sudden no the true the true teaching of christ then it started like wait a minute then you just negated with all the things that came before it like, I'm not a man of traditions, but wait a minute. If you are, I'm a Calvinist, then you're following the traditions of Calvin. Like, how do, I don't see yeah, how obviously. people don't get it. And I do believe that there is so much richness all the way throughout the patristic era, which, uh, like, I did, the allegory that they gave to Branson, for instance, was, like, the Bible is, like, your favorite show on Netflix with seasons and with episodes and all that stuff. It has like, a chronology and storyline. And all of a sudden, like, the, the final season has happened. And you have like these spin-offs, church fathers, and all of them have like it's still history, it's still influence on the church, for instance. And to negate that, that's something that you're somewhat saying that Christ failed to preserve his church. And yeah, I came sure. into to to save everything. It, it, it really does bother me. Like I love my Protestant brothers, but that just like. Mm.
1: Well, it's, it, it's a uh, Nestorian ecclesiology. So it's a denial of the principles of the incarnation for the body of Christ, which is the extension of the incarnation. The church is his mystical body. And so the Christological doctrines of the church fathers that apply to Christ himself, uh, all of those great, you know, uh, uh, creedal statements and dogmatic statements uh, from Constantinople, uh, from Ephesus, to Chalcedon, to Constantinople 1, 2, 3, and even the Icon Council, they all relate directly to all of the other doctrines. So the way that you understand Christology is going to necessarily affect and determine your doctrine of the sacraments, right? So for example, in Ephesus, St. Cyril argues on the basis of Christology, excuse me, on the basis of the Eucharist to prove Christology and vice versa. You can argue back and forth because the principles are going to be the same. The uncreated energies that deify the human nature of Christ is the same energies that we participate in the transformed uh, elements that become the body, blood, soul, and energy or divinity of God, of Christ. So you're going to have to have a, a doctrine of Christology that conditions and makes sense of the sacraments, and by extension... The principle of deification in the elements, in terms of the 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 bread and wine, it's the same principle in the body of church. The church is participating in the uncreated energies because that's his body. That's how we're made whole. That's how we're healed and so forth is being in that body and then participating in that Eucharist in that body. So, And by extension, that same doctrine of the interpenetration of the energies, the imminent presence of the energies, is what conditions and makes sense of our eschatology. So the other churches or sects or groups, they don't have that doctrine. And that is the correct doctrine. It's not up for debate what eschatology is or what sacramentology is or what the doctrine of grace is. No, it's already settled a long time ago. It's the uncreated grace of God distinct from the essence of God. And it's the personal energies that we, we know God through uh, revealed in the person of Christ.
0: Yeah, correct. A question from a friend of mine. What do you say about the Orthodox persons who say that you won't be safe if you become an Orthodox? It's, it's a somewhat of a rhetorical question, but he wanted me to ask you this.
1: Well, I would say that normatively speaking, that is the case. Um, and if God uh, extends his grace and, and, and makes up for what's lacking in people who n- didn't know any better, uh, you know, that kind of a thing, that's up to God. So I don't know. I don't. it's not my position to make that judgment call. That's up to God. Uh, you know, Paul says, what have we to do with judging those that are without we judge those that are within. So, you know, that's up to God that's between them. Um, I, all I know is that it's our duty to tell people that they have to come to the Orthodox church. Uh, so if you're outside the Ark, right, the Orthodox church is the Ark. There's a great icon, which is the boat that is the Orthodox church. I mean, if you're outside that you're, uh, in troubled waters and seas and you'll probably sink. And that's precisely, I mean, that answers your question earlier about atheism. I mean, why do so many Protestants, Roman Catholics, they depart and they become atheists? Uh, I mean, it it can happen amongst Orthodox too, because we have free will, but um, those other groups don't, it's like uh, a city with one real hospital and a bunch of fake hospitals. So could you get some true advice at a fake hospital? Yeah. Could you get... uh, some good medicine at a fake hospital maybe but why wouldn't you go to like the real hospital so
0: great explanation like i knew for instance uh like this book of father seraphim rose uh, he he explained like you need to treat uh the non-orthodox person as people who don't know orthodoxy yet so like be you, you, I do really sense like if I'm like on Clubhouse or Discord or whatever, I do sense that from the Orthodox perspective, there's a lot of polemic towards not, not in a bad, ill way, but they do really want to uh, show you how it's done, but in, in, in a good sense. And uh, that's something that caught the attention of one of my friends. Like, hey, I'm do well, sensing that go ahead. Yeah,
1: no, uh, yeah, I, I was just gonna say that our Discord is actually geared towards polemics. So the the reason why there's a lot of polemics is that it's a polemics-based Discord. (laughs) So, uh, you know, not everybody has to do that. Not everybody's called to do debate. Not everybody has to do it the way we do it. Um, But that's just the way that it is in there because it is specifically a debate-oriented server. Um, But no, we don't, uh, we're we're not like mean to uh, Protestants, generally speaking. And I think that there is, that's the the right basic approach is to treat people uh in that way, like Father Serpent Rose says, unless they demonstrate obstinacy and willful opposition and and uh willful ignorance and so forth. At that point, uh it's no longer goodwill or just merely yeah. you know invincible ignorance, it's actually obstinacy.
0: Yeah. Got a question from another friend of me. Um well we do know, for instance, that oh this this sounds like a, a bash Protestantism kind of session, but we do know for instance, that within Protestantism there are also many denominations in and of themselves. but his question was, uh, how do you see the fact there were also schismatic moments in history concerning the Eastern Orthodoxy and oriental orthodoxy? Like did patriarchs uh, in the Eastern Church like misuse their power or uh, certain creeds that weren't accepted? How do you actually foresee? Uh, schismatic schismatic uh, times within orthodoxy
1: well so i mean anybody that uh schisms from the church is no longer in the church so the coptics and the orientals are not orthodox uh they are orthodox so-called they might have that in their name but uh no they have a defective christology they have a defective uh well, other, many other areas. Uh, they do many things that are not orthodox. They practice things like circumcision, animal sacrifice, lot of these uh, sort of um, Judaized tendencies that the church has long ago moved past. So I'm not saying that uh, everybody in those groups is inherently evil. Uh, again, I'm not trying to make a judgment call on, a, on individuals, but I'm saying that speaking of the groups, the orthodox church has already, stated in her councils and her dogmas how to view those groups and the groups as a whole have defective heterodox beliefs so again um all it's just my duty simply to discuss with those people which is what we do when they, we invite them to discord we invite them to discuss uh you know their christology these issues the energies whatever the issue is uh and then we tell them to become orthodox
0: yeah yeah like I, I do remember like one of my favorite doctrines is theosis like uh, that just i'm just loving it but i was shocked for the fact that um pope shinuda uh the pope of Alexandria, or the patriarch of alexander to be uh to be more specific he, that well he, that's to the coptics not for the, us correct yeah. yeah i know i know but that he negated theosis and he's somewhat of like the the that, that, uh, if it comes to the apost- apostolic succession, here's like the follow up of. Athanasius. Yeah, it sounded like
1: yeah, I've read the essay. It sounds like it's written by James White. I mean, it's, it's baffling to me how anyone could think that's orthodox. It's just very, so mm-hmm. far from. I mean Saint Athanasius talks about deification Theosis all the time. Yeah. And this guy's supposed the, to this, be
0: this, this, the son of God became son of messiah so that sons of man shall become sons of God. How I mean, yeah, deosis? and this guy's
1: supposed to be the successor to Athanasius. It's just like such a fundamental level of ignorance, it's kind of staggering. But yeah, I mean, and there's other other things you could point yeah. to with uh they're just confused and and kind of simplistic Christology, I guess is one way to put it. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are a handful of subjects uh my other question This uh, these are this is actually an amalgamation of uh, of two in one um how do you amalgamate the Ventilian way of presuppositional apologetics with orthodoxy in other words how do you reason in a circle with objective truth in mind
1: well first thing is that everybody admits uh from the church fathers that The source of an argument has nothing to do with the truth or falsity of an argument. So the fact that Van Til says this or Bonson says this has nothing to do with whether it's true or false. Uh, That would be the the genetic fallacy. I don't know why people can't figure this out, right? That the fact that Van Til made an argument, again, has nothing to do with whether it's true or false. Uh, I mean, the church fathers utilize arguments from all kinds of ridiculous pagan figures, right? I mean, we've got arguments from Aerosol, from Plato, from Porphyry, from... Tinus, right? Uh, so I mean, they're just as heterodox. They're more heterodox than Van Til. So, are we going to toss out all of those arguments if the basis for who we accept is whether they're Protestant or? I mean, these people are pagans. So it's so I mean, it's like Roman Catholics usually voice this objection that you can't use this argument because Van Til said he was a Calvinist. What's well, just stupid, right? Yeah. So now, if the argument is that you can't use the argument because it's. Uh, reformed in terms of its theology presuppositions that's different from saying that it's bad because it's from Van Til so they would need to demonstrate how that's the case I don't see how that's the case because it really isn't I mean why would we not want a really good argument <laughs> I mean why would we not want to use an argument that moves us in the direction of proving the trinity especially given the fact that we've had you know centuries of using these really bad arguments that atheists uh don't even find convincing anymore so i mean they they oftentimes people who object to this argument uh want to use pragmatic arguments well this is an intensely pragmatic argument it makes more converts typically speaking than these tired uh rehashed centuries old classical evidentialist arguments that are not very good arguments so again uh it's very difficult, I think, for people to, um, number one, understand the argument, and then number two, understand, get away from just sort of appeals to tradition. So, I mean, there's a valid place for tradition, obviously, but uh, I mean, at what point is it an appeal to tradition when, you know, you've got tons of people relying on Aristotle, relying on bad arguments in Plotinus, relying on bad arguments in any other uh, n- number of pagan philosophers? I mean, for example, if you look at the early apologists, I mean, many of them ended up, Heterodox. They're not even in the church. People like Tatian, for example. So their they're stupid apologetic took them so far as to leave the church because they had a wrong foundation, a wrong presupposition, and they ended up in heterodox groups because they were following, quote, Greek wisdom and philosophy and bad argumentation. So we want to be uh thoroughly trinitarian and christological in our apologetic i don't understand why people think that christology and revealed theology isn't gonna affect our epistemology and our apologetics i mean it's just a it's really a no-brainer but um so the way that i would say it doesn't relate to van till is that it's not a question of the soundness of the argument itself or whether the argument itself is valid but it's the question of well, did Van Til and Bonson have erroneous theological views that skewed or didn't allow them to make the argument as well as it could be made? And that's the way I view it. I view it that this is a great argument. Uh, it's a objectively, philosophically, logically solid argument. But it does need to be purified of the Well, the Trinitarian, basically, uh, errors and mistakes that Bonson and Van Til had typically, which could be summarized by just the default Augustinian positions of absolute divine yeah. simplicity, filioque way, uh, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because it, then it becomes an either or dialectic, like, wait a minute, or you're a Calvinist, or you're Ventilian, or you're Orthodox, or you're not a Calvinist. Like, But then, it's, then it actually becomes uh, yeah, chewing out to me, spitting out the bone. I really do like
1: well, I mean, so uh, Augustine, for example, he read and used uh, commentaries and theological. This is more important. This is this is more central to our faith than philosophy. He used commentaries of a Donatist. Okay, the Cappadocians read and used arguments and philosophy and and commentaries from Origin. Does that mean that I have to accept Originism? Does that mean I have to accept everything in Origin? No. So uh, again, it, it, the source has nothing to do with the truth or falsity i mean judas can say something true right and it's true or false irrespective of the wickedness of satan can say things true right? So <laughs> separating the message from the messenger that's what yeah comes i mean that's yeah. and, and that's again that's a you know it's something basic to philosophy we people who know basic philosophy should know that that should be something uh, well known i should add to that it's not just by the way a doctrine of purifying uh Bantil or Bonson from erroneous Trinitarian theology obviously by extension they would have other uh, doctrines that we would reject such as their doctrine total depravity which affects their epistemology um, they would say that the noetic effects of sin are such that sin is always messing up my interpretation and my knowledge um, that would actually undercut the entire point of the, tr- the, the, the transcendental argument because the transcendental argument is arguing that you actually know this to be the case and there's, and it's necessarily so, and it can't be otherwise. Uh, But to say that would be impossible if the noetic effects of sin were always making you potentially wrong, fallible, uh, et cetera. So yes, uh, there's obviously the anthropology is wrong. uh, The soteriology is wrong. um, But if we clean out all of that, The argument itself that that knowledge itself presupposes the truant God. I don't see why. Like, why would we not want to use
0: that kind of an argument? Mm, Great point. I do want to dissect into um, this other "quote unquote" issue. Uh, For the past, I don't know what it is. Like one year, one and a half year, uh, you've delved a bit more into Islam, and you had Mm. like uh, debates with Shabir Ali, Sheikh Asrar Rashid, which I. Very much enjoyed. Uh, Thank you. I I heard from your conversation with Al-Fadi that uh, you were just familiar with Islam for like three months or something that you dove into a debate with one of the best guys they got, namely Shabir Ali. And uh, when you look at the future that's coming up, when when you look at like declining of Christianity, hopefully God willing, that it would also be rising up again. Uh, How do you actually foresee the conversations between like this comparative religion uh realm or arena how much do you see uh islam being quote-unquote a threat towards christianity because for instance in holland alone we have like every other week there's this youtube channel from muslims they're like doing dawah they're like all the way up there and like all of a sudden they got within a week they got like thousands of followers and there's one christian dude None. Like I'm, I don't, I'm one of the few as a figure of speech. We got the and not it's not about these about the numbers, but about the, the fruits. Uh,
1: well, it's a scourge. I mean, it's a chastisement for uh, Western apostasy. Uh, the irony is that even Western Christians centuries ago understood that Islam is a scourge for when people f- forsake God. <laughs> so, I mean, that's clearly what it is. I mean. It really is successful only when people are totally ignorant of their Bible, totally ignorant of the history of the church, totally ignorant of uh, basic philosophy. So we've had such a degradation of education, uh, of uh, pedagogy uh, in the West that now everyone is just totally susceptible to these really kind of low level, low tier arguments. And I, I think that Islam really thrives on uh, simplistic low-level arguments and ign- ignorance of the Bible mainly. So it's not so much even uh, having you know high-level philosophical conceptual understanding of the Trinity or metaphysics. I mean, those things are very helpful. They're good skill sets and tools to have in uh, this debate and engaging with Islam. But the main reason that Muslims are so successful is people don't know the Bible. They don't know the doctrine of the Trinity. They can't give a defense of it. And you can't do this without intense knowledge of the old testament because the Trinity doesn't just pop up in John, it's not invented by Paul, it's not invented by Nicaea, it's grounded in the Old Testament. And if you're not saturated with the entirety of scripture, you're not going to be able to respond to, you know, the guy on the corner who says, Who is Jesus praying to? Who is how is God greater? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. I mean, if we had read Athanasius and Basil, we know how to respond to that because they dealt with that argument countless times through debating Aryans and
0: Eunomians. Yeah. That's it. Like the 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 level of where Muslims at is such like I do know for a fact that within their madrasas, within their mosques, like there are more, there are like Equipped with polemical "quote unquote" arguments towards Christianity, right? And like we Christians, we don't have a clue. Like, like the thing about Muslims, they really do think that the West is Christian, and the reason why it's fallen because of corruption, all the type of stuff. Like, different subject in and of itself. I will have uh, Gordon D. Nickel on, uh, one of the yeah. yeah, one of the best if it comes to Islamic studies. We'll talk about that particular subject. But I do do realize that. Uh, Christians do really need to wake up. And my conviction is that we have already won. I have delved into Islam. I have delved into their theology. And there are so many places they're absolutely stuck. And it's, it's just a matter of, of getting the win in. And, uh, but I, we can't do this all by ourselves, for instance. like We do need to like invite them. Uh, as as uh, Gordon D. Nichols says, we need to give them a gentle answer because a gentle answer uh, turns away wrath. Like, we don't want to stir up some animosity, which is a very easy thing to do. Like, where's there's this app called uh, Clubhouse, somewhat same thing like Discord, for instance. Mm-hmm. And there are so many discussions going on already, but they are only attacking the Bible. Like, one of them is called uh, Ask Muslims, the club is called Ask Muslims. And the only thing they talk about is about christianity like you do really sense from their side from the atheist side from the liberal side there's this anti-christian agenda going on which is like very yeah i don't know how to describe I'm very fascinated by the anti-christian spirit like it's it's somewhat um what's the word for it again it's suspicious like why does everybody hate why does everybody hate him why do you hate him like that's something because it's true i mean that's the best explanation
1: for why Uh i mean the bible itself actually explains why everyone hates christ because of the fall so you know romans one says that man in his heart of hearts knows that he's a sinner and that he's rebelling against the one true god uh and but what he does according to saint paul is suppress that knowledge right and Uh, seek to then stamp out the testimony or witness to God, whether it's in nature, whether it's in the church and scripture, whether it's in the lives of the saints and the church, or whether it's in his own conscience. Man is against himself because the only way to be truly man is to be in Christ, who is the archetype of man. He is the new Adam. So that's the only way to be truly human this is why what happens to fallen man is that he's against himself and against man. So he's divided against himself and he doesn't realize that he's part of a satanic delusion, which is to destroy his other brothers, mankind. So he's fighting man for Satan. So Satan has duped him. It's kind of like, um, it makes me think of the analogies that I see in like geopolitics for the conspiracy world of like, when uh, like say professors who are super liberal, but really devious, they will uh, dupe their students into being activists and they will hype them up and they maybe they're even like an informant, right? And they get the, the youthful idiotic activists to go out there and do things. I don't know, some kind of blow something up or something like this. And then the, they go to, to, to prison uh, the professor, oh, you know, he he gets off the hook because he was, you know, FBI informant handler or whatever. So he was just doing his job. So he duped them into fighting other humans, right? And he was the sort of uh, mastermind of it for political elites or you know billionaires or whoever the liberal professor was uh, was bought off by or paid paid by or serving. So that's a good. It's kind of an analogy I'm thinking mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. what Satan does to get man to destroy man thinking that he's getting ahead or getting freedom or you know whatever when it's all uh self-destructive and all motivated by the hatred of christ because the reason that satan hates man is because the incarnation and the orthodox view was always going to happen man was made precisely because the second person god had intended to take on human nature and the devil and his angels uh were envious they didn't believe that man should be exalted to that position because that would put man above them. Wait a minute. So God is going to join himself to their nature. We're angels. We're above them, right? Mm. He made man a little lower than the angels. We should be, we should get that, not them. So that there's a, a, a uh, solidified hatred that can never change on the part of the demons for humanity because they see in humanity the image of Christ. what it means to be made in the image of god is literally to be in the image of christ according to the orthodox
0: fathers wow that really does explain so many things because i do know for a fact that it exists because i was one because i had the anti-christian spirit i mean i was the person that was like trying to deviate persons from so just regular people deviate more from from christ for instance there was a particular moment where i was just regurgitating like the, the, the basic atheist premises or the, the, the thing, which was like, I don't know, 17. Like I, I already mentioned before, like I did watch Zeitgeist and oh Parallelomania and uh, it's <clears from> Horus <throat> and this type of stuff. And I'm like, I just want to whack myself thinking about it. But I do know.
1: Well, we're all born into the, the world with that spirit, that rebellious spirit. So I think everybody in burying, I mean, some people obviously can be Uh, you know, cleansed and brought into the church very young. Sure. But um, everybody, to some degree, being a son of Adam, (laughs) we have that rebellious spirit in us at some point. And most people go through a phase, you know, when they're in their teens or in their 20s, where they, you know, experiment and go try other things. And so it happens, I think, to everybody. And, And I can remember when I was a teenager, you know, I was very, I don't even remember consciously, like, I didn't wake up one day, like, I am not going to be a Christian. But I remember, like, you know, just having very kind of wicked thoughts and very uh, anti Christian thoughts. And I don't even know where they came from. It's just, you know, I would have these thoughts and I would, like you said, I kind of agree with anybody going against Christians just because I thought it was funny and cool in high school. And, ha ah, ha ha, they're a bunch of nerds. What a bunch of idiots. And, and, and I don't even know. I didn't have a good reason. It was just like, yeah, well, whatever. Screw them.
0: Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm just
1: Well, then I think that's because we, if we're not in Christ seeking him, et cetera, in the church, participating in the sacraments, we are then opened up to the influence of the demonic. I mean, we can be influenced by the demonic, even in the church. I mean, people in the church who, for example, get uh, tripped up in heresies or get uh, super self-righteous about their fasting or whatever, those are demonic delusions too. So even if, if we can be under demonic delusion and spiritual influence in the church, so absolutely, even more so, can we be outside the church? We are just yeah. pray for, you know, all manner of uh, wicked uh,
0: influences. Uh, thank the Lord that He has been gracious towards us. I really do that, and that He has become patient with us. Like you do, really understand, like Romans eight twenty eight, like all things work together for the good of God, like even the bad things and the good things. And so- something like the one of the people. One of the men who actually did influence me was Jordan Peterson, and uh, his last one of his last uh, conversations that he had is the word he actually uses for Christ, which he like says he weirdly believes, is that he is terrifying. And I do believe the fact that a lot of atheists and a lot of people who have like this anti-Christian spirit in them are terrified of him because if the whole this whole stuff, if this stuff is true, which we do believe is true then yeah that the second person of the Trinity has become incarnate has to put all the sin on himself that he is the judge like if all of all of this is true what type of implication does this have for everyone and that's something terrifying yeah, well I do... it means
1: we have to change the way we are we live and a lot of people don't want to change that so exactly I mean G- Jesus says it really well in John 3 right he says that the light came into the world and the world hates the light because it wants to remain in darkness. Correct. And he says, so the wicked don't come to the light lest these be exposed. So they would rather remain in darkness because they're, you know, prisoners to the darkness.
0: Yeah. Not everybody likes the lights. I was saying and part but- of that
1: is fear, right? They're afraid that they... Uh, you know will lose who they are they, they won't be the same person or but that's all also demonic delusion right I mean I just keep more and more thinking about and, and it's becoming more and more evident in our world just how powerful and obvious it is that it's demonic right I mean yeah. it's just so obvious that all of the things that are being promoted from the top down uh, they're not just social engineering it is but they're ultimately demonic in origin because the only way to make sense of all of it is to figure out oh actually it's a top-down thing that is anti-human <laughs> and what is anti-human principally satan right i mean bill gates klaus Schwab they don't have the wherewithal and the power to organize an entire spirit right that has diluted the globe but satan does so you know, understanding that it goes beyond the human dimension is a much, has much more explanatory power than, you know, just looking at things at a geopolitical level and saying, oh, well, there's like, you know, really wealthy people who want to depopulate. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense uh, to a degree, but it's still lacking in like, well, how are they able to, you know, like get everybody on board with things that are, for example, self-destructive? I mean, it 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 goes beyond merely human machinations. What I'm trying to say, and therefore, you know, when you look at the spiritual domain or level above that, it makes much more sense.
0: Yeah, that all that even the most powerful powerful people on Earth are also like influenced. But that, yeah. that's 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 the whole thing. Like once you can convince uh, atheists for of the metaphysical spiritual side that the thing we attack, we fight with, are not of of the flesh and blood. These are the spiritual domain, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, hence the full armor apologetics. It's not about that I'm going to step into the ring. It's about the spiritual battle we're going into. But it does, you cannot address a problem if you're not it first. And mm-hmm. you once already yeah. mentioned before, like the problems we have in this world are not solved politically, but spiritually. And mm-hmm. yeah, and Paul says in Romans 12, too, like it's by the renewing mm-hmm. of your mind. Yeah, the constant renewing of your mind and that's what we're trying to do like what you're doing before for instance with uh edifying christians all over the world like you're reading books you're giving lectures you're explicating everything like uh christians who are like not that that steady in their faith are due now and we need more of that so yet again a lot of respect for you and your work um may god Grant you all the best that he has to offer for you. May God bless you with health, with vigor, with more wisdom. Um, may we become like him. And uh, yeah, Brother Jay, what can I say? I wish you the very best. Um, thank you for your time. Absolutely. You had an yeah, yeah, absolutely a great time. And uh, yeah, is, are there any final remarks from your side before uh, ending this? Re-
1: uh, not that I can think of. Uh, if people are interested, uh, yeah, you can go to my channel. Um, you can follow me on Rockfin, which is a great uh, free speech-based platform because obviously we don't know how long, uh, you know, the present YouTube and all that's going to allow us to be here. Um, you can follow me on the other social medias and and all that. And, uh, yeah, just uh, happy to, you know, keep churning out all this stuff. And I'm, I'm glad it's,
0: it's beneficial. Yeah. I, most definitely we'll also have the links in the description Now, um, can I say then everyone thanks for watching thus far um, may, we, may we also be as prolific and as fruitful if it comes to this channel may we give everybody over the world uh, yeah, the, the the message of what the Bible has to offer all the glory to our trying God so brother Jay thank you very much brother
1: awesome thank you man have a good night
0: Yeah.